First of all, I want to thank you for inviting me back. It's really... Uh, It's a special privilege to be here. I hope you know what you're doing. You have chosen what is probably the most radical text in Scripture to help celebrate 50 years together. It's a text that begins with two cities, if you will, a little dinky port that was very, very old. Existed before the Jews came back from Egypt. Small, sort of irrelevant. And a big, huge, dynamic, vital, significant port the head of the Roman Empire in the Middle East. It's where Pilate had his headquarters. It's where the Roman army in the Middle East had its headquarters. It was a place that faithful Jews, that politically committed Jews, would never go in. Because you see it enabled the Roman army to control what they believed belonged to them by God's gift. Now the scene switches to a man, an Italian. His name is Cornelius. And he is the head of a significant portion of the Roman army. the Italian cohort. They had all sorts of mercenaries in their army, but the core of the army, the center of it, were always the Italians. Terrific fighters, fighting for their homeland. So he is, to the Jews, among the most hated of all people. But he's an interesting guy. He is a believer in one God. He has given up on the Roman system of multiple gods. And he's praying to that one God. And an angel comes to him and says, Cornelius, I want you to send for Peter. He's in Joppa. That's 30 miles down the road. And listen to what he says. So Cornelius does it. <laughs> now the scene shifts to Joppa. Peter is in Joppa because of a woman named Tabitha, who was a great, wonderful, terrific Christian woman who cared for lots of people, but she was dying. And the church sends for Peter in the hope that maybe, just maybe, he might be able to heal her. But she dies before he gets there. Peter resuscitates her. 
And it's a great, joyous celebration. And Peter is spiritually exhausted, and he's hungry, and he asks for something to eat, and he goes up on the roof to pray, and he has a bizarre vision. A big white linen sheet filled with unclean animals. Animals that, according to the book of Deuteronomy, Jews were not allowed to eat. You've heard it. Snakes, lizards, pigs, all sorts of yucky creatures. And the angel says to him, You're hungry, Peter. (laughs) Kill and eat. He sees it as a test. Oh, no, Lord, never, no, I never eat any unclean food. I'm a good Jew. But he doesn't get the answer he expects. What I call clean, don't you dare call unclean. But, 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 Lord, you in Deuteronomy said. And the sheet goes up to heaven. Comes back down again. Same dialogue. Goes back up to heaven. Comes back down again. Same dialogue. Goes up to heaven. Peter's totally flummoxed. What's the deal here? And there's a knock on the door. And it's Cornelius's servants. Well, being a good Jew, he invites them to eat with him. Don't know it says anything about telling Simon's wife about that, but she provides food. And they say to him, Our master has had this vision, and you are to come and speak to him. And he decides he's going to do it. He is going to go into the hated, abominable Caesarea and talk to a Roman soldier. They get there the next day, and he meets Cornelius and his family. Cornelius says, well, what do you have to tell me? And he preaches a sermon. (laughs) He tells them about Jesus. And as soon as he's done, Cornelius and his whole family fall on their knees and begin to pray. And the Holy Spirit comes. And the room is filled with the power of the Spirit. And Peter says, wait a minute, this is all wrong. (laughs) This isn't what's supposed to happen. He's not a Jew. He's the enemy. What's going on? And then he remembers the vision. What I have called clean, don't you dare call unclean.
and he does a remarkable thing. He baptizes them. <laughs> he doesn't ask them to be circumcised. He doesn't ask them to become a Jew. He baptizes him and his whole family. He gets back to Jerusalem and he meets a furious church. Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know who this guy is? You shouldn't have gone in in the first place. What are you doing? You baptize somebody who's not a Jew? You baptize the enemy? I'm supposed to take communion with this guy? Are you kidding me? It's the sea chains, people. <laughs> From that moment, the church has changed. Peter understands that God's love is not limited to the Jews. Peter grasps that Jesus died not just for the good guys. The enemies of the church need to be approached. Gentiles need to be approached. All of a sudden, the gospel's being spread everywhere. So many Gentiles are becoming Christians that they have to have, get this, a church convention <laughs> to figure out what to do with them all. Do they have to become Jews before they become Christians? And the answer ultimately is no. And there's a host of people who disagree with that answer. <laughs> and they follow Paul all around, telling people, you got to become a Jew before you become a Christian. It took almost a century to get that sorted out. But within 30 years, the gospel had been spread from Spain to India. God doesn't just love certain people. Jesus didn't just die for the disciples. It is so hard for us to get that. When I was bishop, I had a woman call me once, and she just said right out of the blue, is it a sin to want to not grow? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, I'm a member of Church A, and now we're thinking of joining with Church B and becoming one congregation so we can have two pastors and reach out more aggressively to unchurched people. And there's a whole host of us that don't want that. We like it the way it is. Everybody knows everybody. It's nice. We like to sing the same hymns. We like to do the same worship. You know, new people come, they're going to want to sing different hymns and, and maybe different music and do different things. And We, we, we don't want to do that. 
Sometimes it's more aggressive than that. I had a member of the congregation I went to from here who came to my office one day and he said, I want you to get rid of Jack. Why do you want to do that? He said, well, he caused our business to go under. I can't stand him anymore. I said, you know I'm not going to do that. And he said, well, do this anyway. I'm going to come to church a little early, and you tell me whether he's here. Because I'll tell you, Pastor, I do not want to take communion and all of a sudden look up and see the face of my enemy. Isn't that what Cornelius is about? We like to associate with who we like to associate with. But that isn't necessarily who God wants us to associate with. I was pastor here for three years. Martin Luther King was shot. Milwaukee went nuts. Riots and fires and Father Grappi was running around trying to get everybody hyped up about the issue. So a bunch of us clergy from the Wisconsin up in it got together and we tried to figure out what to do about it. And some of us young ones had it all worked out. <laughs> all you got to do, we said, is get rid of the bigots. Kick them out. You can't be a Christian and a bigot. And we were trying to figure out how we were going to identify the bigots and how we were going to kick them out. And a pastor from the back of the church stood up, and he was an older pastor and about to retire. And this is what he said. Well, boys, I'll tell you what. You just wrap up all them bigots and send them to me. God loves bigots too. God loves bigots? Where's that going to end, folks? Does God love drug dealers? Does God love gang members? Does God love prostitutes? Does God love alcoholics? Does God love Ponzi scheme people? Where does that end? Have you ever read Paul? Romans. Chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Indeed, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. 
But God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait God didn't wait until our morality index was above 50%. God didn't wait until our theology was clear and bold and direct like good Lutheran theology. While we still were sinners. When I was called to become the pastor of a congregation that has not existed yet, south side of Waukesha, the Board of American Missions said this to me. You're not being called to the south side of Waukesha to simply move already existing Lutherans around to different congregations. You're being called to reach the unchurched. Oh, if, if somebody in one of those congregations wants to join, they're welcome. And you visit everybody in the area you're supposed to be in and invite them to come if they want. But you aim for the unchurched. If you look back there, at the charter that was signed when this congregation was organized, 60% of those people were unchurched. That's our job. It's hard work. That's our job. We are to tell the people who don't know that God loves them. We are to let people know that Jesus died for them. The church has never been about a group of sweet, pious, wonderful people. Every one of those people, including the pastor who signed it, was a sinner. Every time you come take communion, you're taking communion with a bunch of sinners. The church is not about us. It's about the enormous, unspeakable, incredible love of God. And if you think about it, isn't that terrific? Terrific.